I still remember the first time that I saw one, or at least the first time that I noticed one or thought to question what it was that I was seeing. It was in 2016. I was working at Gull Lake and I remember uh, being out on this trail doing, doing one of my usual kind of rounds and there was, on actually several different plants, there was this um, almost like a sticky white foam that was oozing out. It wasn't until 2019, though, that I found the cause. And it happened after an experience with something that I thought, at least, was completely different. I, I never would have imagined that the two were connected. A small, paper football-shaped creature that disappeared before my very eyes that led me into an internet rabbit hole, and eventually, here. Hey there, wildlings, I'm Devin Boker, and today is about noticing the unseen the small, the strange, and the super, with a very special, wickedly smart guy who I'm really excited for you to get to know. Stick around. You're listening to The Wildlife. This is episode 97. Believe it or not, 97, because we did a recount uh, without Ryan Reynolds. Yeah, without Ryan on to chat about real-life wolverines and how they compare to the one played by Hugh Jackman. And while that might be a major bummer, turn that frown upside down because today is going to blow your mind and will make you wonder why we don't have an X-Men character based on these fascinating creatures. As always, I want to take a moment to thank our member supporters before we get started. Karen Bingston, Paul over at the Varmints Podcast, Cody Mathis, the Mad Scientist Pod, Rosie Bailey, Charlie Rodriguez, Charlene Irvin-Brown, Kim Drolet, Karen Bergman, Tara Peterson, Vikram Baliga, Mike Henry, Angela Seibert, Bridget Fitzgerald, uh, Megan Gariani, and Matt Capel. And you know what? I should mention, Vikram Baliga, you've heard the name, you know it, uh, host of Planthropology and the Plant Prof, amazing guy. Check out his stuff and, and check out Varmints and the Mad Scientist Pod as well. I'm going to link to those in the episode notes. Great friends of the show, great people, um, and I, I'm pretty sure you'll love their content too. You can join the esteemed ranks of the people that I just listed by becoming a member supporter and not just supporting the show, uh, the podcast, but also supporting our nonprofit organization, at patreon.com slash the wildlife, or you can make a one-time contribution at paypal.me slash the wildlife. Now, I know that we are uh, already a couple of minutes in the episode and you're like, all right, what are these, what are these creatures? What am I clicking on here? Uh, what am I about to listen to? And we haven't gotten to it quite yet. And I'm sorry to stall, but I haven't asked. Um, it's, it's a big, it's a big ask. Actually, it's a very little ask, but I, I feel bad asking? I don't know. Ratings and reviews. Um, it's it's hard to uh, express just how meaningful ratings and reviews are, not just for um, moving up in, in ranks or on, on, on top charts or anything like that, which it does help tremendously, but um, also so that we know how we're doing. 
um, what you want to hear, what you want to see, what questions you might have. So uh, right now what we're asking is if you listen, especially um, on uh, Apple Podcasts, if you can take just a moment of your time, even while you're listening right now, to uh, click on the show, leave a rating, drop a review, and, and even if you if you leave a review, uh, include a question uh, because we'd love to answer it and, and uh, read your review on the show. In fact, here's one um, that we just got a couple of days ago. Um, it says, fantastic podcast, five stars. I've learned so many things from the wildlife. I mostly listen to this podcast when I'm driving or doing chores. My boyfriend and I absolutely love it. They explain the wonders and curiosity of nature through fun in informative ways with like a double smiley face. Maybe it's a double chin. Maybe it's a caterpillar. I really can't tell. But anyway, um, please do that. If, if you can take just a moment to, to drop a quick rating, drop a quick review. Um, it, it helps tremendously and, um, it does the heart good. <laughs> now that foam that I mentioned oozing from the stem of a plant, had I looked closer or wiped it away, I, I would have seen exactly who was responsible. Because there is a who there. But never would I have imagined that they were the very same creature who that same year I had found in huge numbers on a chair at the lake, only to have them practically vanish in the blink of an eye. What are they? Spittlebugs and frog hoppers. They're actually one and the same, just two different names for two different stages of life. Kind of like in humans, we have, you know, the youths and adults, or sometimes in different generations, we have millennials and Gen X, and or we call them the Karens and the Boomers, who whoever uh, you might be referring to. And it's kind of a bummer, actually, that in uh, other parts of the animal kingdom, they get fun names like this, like Spittlebug and Froghopper. Where are our fun names? It's kind of bogus. And joining us today to tell us all about these creatures and what makes them so fascinating is Dr. Jason Cryan. He is the executive director of the Natural History Museum of Utah, whose entomological research focuses on the systematics or the phylogenetic relationships and taxonomy of Akinorinka, a group of plant sap eating insects in the order Hemiptera, which we're going to talk a lot about today. He has an ongoing research project on tree hoppers, spittle bugs, and plant hoppers, which are honestly quite charismatic and evolutionarily interesting insects that can be found across the world with the highest diversity occurring in the tropics, like you might expect. And these groups include many species of global economic importance as agricultural pests. His research also includes large-scale investigations of phylogenetic relationships based on, get this, comparative DNA sequencing, as well as scientific descriptions of new species aka biodiversity discovery, which is super cool. Let's get to it. If you're good, we can go ahead and get started. Certainly. Some of this. Okay. Um, well, we always like to ask them some just very general questions right off the bat, again, because part of what we're doing is trying to just uh, expose the reality of, of science and, and getting into the career path and what that might look like and uh, how wow. it's done. And so we like to ask just some personal questions first, like how, you know, how long have you been interested in science? Is it in like your whole life kind of thing or more recently? Yeah. So I grew up in, in upstate Vermont, so very close to the Canadian border, mm -hmm. the huge city of Burlington, Vermont. 
Uh, I was born in, in 1970 and I always growing up had um, a keen interest in nature. I didn't have any particular you know, specific interest. So I wasn't you know, a mammal kid or a, I wasn't the kid who collected bugs, but I was always outside. We were you know, growing up in a time when, when your folks just kind of said, go outside and play, yeah. come back at dinner time. And so that's what I did. I, I was outside all the time. And I had, again, as I said, a keen interest in, in just observing and playing in, in nature. And um, I stayed in Vermont until, uh, or through uh, undergraduate, I was at the University of Vermont. Mm-hmm. And when I was there, kind of academically formulating my, you know, my ideas and plans for the future, I was there at a time when concepts like Earth Day and biodiversity were, were hot topics. They were, yeah. um, you know, Earth Day, of course, was um, started in the year I was born in 1970. But in that era, in that uh, time and place, for me, those concepts became formative. Those concepts became kind of driving uh, and, and really made me curious about going out into the world. I started reading uh, things by biologists and, and kind of luminaries in the field like E.O. Wilson, who um, mm-hmm. you know, spoke in terms of the great discoveries that were left uh, in our own backyards. Uh, and so how we, we knew as scientists uh, very little about the biodiversity of the world. And there was still so much to explore. And I, I became enamored with the idea of exploring that nature, not only in, in my region in New England, but also around the world. Uh, and, and growing up as a kid in the snow belt there, I became very excited about the idea of tromping around tropical rainforests and, and <laughs> learning about the nature there. And so, uh, so that's kind of what led me then to graduate school. Uh, I went to North Carolina State University in Raleigh. Uh, for both a master's and a PhD. I sure. completed uh, the PhD in 99. And I really uh, there um, got to work on some really charismatic and wacky animals. I, I really was trying to find the weirdest kind of animals that I could uh, particularly focus on. And I came across these uh, this group of insects uh, that are called alkinorinca, mm-hmm. is the scientific name. And basically, they're the hoppers. So things like plant hoppers and tree hoppers and leaf hoppers. Um, they're all related to, to cicadas as well, oh. and spittlebugs are in this group of insects. And so that really started my career in, in entomology. Uh, and again, I was able to kind of focus on this amazing group of insects that has worldwide distribution, but predominantly um, biodiverse in the tropics. Now, one thing we should probably mention is that these bugs, um, we mentioned earlier, Hemiptera. Hemiptera are known as true bugs. Now, you've probably heard before um, bugs and insects and then people saying things like, oh, insects aren't bugs. Don't call them bugs. Well, okay, here's the thing. It's kind of like not all whales are dolphins, but all dolphins are whales. Um, there is a group of bugs, and what defines them as a true bug is basically their mouth is adapted as a straw meant for drinking things up. If you've got a mouth like that and you're related, you are a true bug. Everything else is just, you know, another insect that you might call a bug, but I guess they're false bugs. Now, what you might be wondering, given their amazing hopping ability, is are these frog hoppers related to, say, I don't know, uh, fleas or grasshoppers? Not very. Not very closely related at all. So there are all kinds of insects across Insecta Mm -hmm. that have similar functional abilities. 
So in this particular case, you know, hopping, uh, we, we, we talk about the Alcinorinca, this, this group of Hemiptera, as hoppers, plant hoppers and, and frog hoppers and tree hoppers, leaf hoppers. But there are all kinds of other kind of distantly related groups that we know for their jumping ability. Fleas certainly among them. Mm-hmm. Um, columbula are springtails, um, kind of lower in the evolutionary scale of insects. Certainly grasshoppers and, and crickets and things like that are, are very well known for their, their jumping ability. So they, it's interesting that all of these groups, they're, they're very distantly related. They're not, they're not closely related at all. And they have similar functional abilities, but they, they accomplish those functional abilities in different ways. Take wings as an example. Uh, bats have wings, butterflies have wings, birds have wings, all different ways of achieving the same thing, flight. It might be to travel, escape predators, better find food, better find mates. But none of those things are really closely related, nor did their evolution happen in the same way. Now, if you take a grasshopper, they are able to hop because of incredibly powerful hind legs. Uh, the the Alcinoringa hoppers, the Hemipteran hoppers, though, they have even greater jumping abilities, but they do it very differently. They don't have such thick legs. They do it with uh, internal musculation and, and the way that the musculature is, is um, kind of runs inside internally in the body uh, and the way that they flex the, those muscles using you know, the whole body and not just the leg. Sure. And that's what creates a tension that, that makes them hop and they, they propel through the air at, at velocities that are just astounding. You can actually see this in a video that really breaks it down. We'll put it in the episode notes. It's by Dr. Adrian Smith. And um, basically, they're clocked at traveling at 5,400 meters per second. And in this jump, they experience 550 Gs. 550. I mean, that's just amazing. Just outstanding. And, and far beyond what fleas or you know other grasshoppers or other jumping you know, famous out of insects yeah. are, are known. You know, like when I, when I first saw this, I thought maybe um, it was, it was right after rain. Um, and so everything was kind of, uh, you know, condensed in the morning and stuff. And I, and I saw this bubbling and I thought maybe it was just, you know, some kind of leaking from the plant or something yeah. like that. Um, and then, like I said, I, I looked at it a little bit further and realized that there was a lot more going on there. Um, yeah. What What is how, like, how is that foam made and, and what is, what is that for? <laughs> what, what's going on here? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's a great question. So, um, Hemiptera as an order are in a, uh, in a kind of general group of insects on the evolutionary scale that are called uh, hemimetabolous insects. That means that they don't have a complete metamorphosis between the nymphal stage and the adult stage. Okay. So that's contrasted to in, within insects, the other kind of major group of insects called holometabolous insects. Some of these might be uh, butterflies, fireflies, ladybugs. So what that means is that the nymphs and the adults kind of look like each other and they kind of do the same things and they kind of live in the same general habitats with all, you know, uh, with some exceptions, of course. Um, so in the particular case of Cercopoidea, spittlebugs and frog hoppers. The, the eggs are laid in a substrate, whether it's on the plant or in the, in the soil. Mm-hmm. And the, the newly hatched nymphs will kind of 
attach themselves to the host plant that they're either on or close to. And as I mentioned earlier, the, the defining feature, the defining factor of Pemiptera are the fact that they have, as a group, they have these mouth parts that have evolved or adapted into yeah. essentially a straw. And so they, they are um, evolved for liquid diets. In the case of all Alkinorinca, all hoppers, mm -hmm. whether, you're, whether you're talking about cicadas or spittlebugs or tree hoppers or, or leaf hoppers, plant hoppers, these are all phytophagous insects. That means that they're plant eating. Okay. And so their straws, their mouth parts, insert into the plant and they suck out one of the two kinds of liquid tissue within vascular plants. Okay. So there are two kinds of liquid tissue in, in vascular plants. There, there's phloem and there's xylem. And spittlebugs, in particular, are xylem feeders, as are their closest relatives, the cicadas. Sure. Whereas most of those other hoppers that I spoke about, the plant hoppers and the tree hoppers and leaf hoppers, they're all phloem feeders. So what that means is that the organisms that eat the xylem have to ingest a whole lot of it just to get the nutrition that they need to develop. You see, xylem fluid is less nutritious. So basically, to... to to get the same amount of oomph, you have to have a lot more. Frog hoppers have to ingest so much liquid xylem tissue that just to get the nutrition that they need to develop, that they have to pass that liquid through their bodies in enormous amounts. And the evolutionary strategy that they, they've kind of come up with as a group to deal with that copious amounts of liquid that's passed through their bodies is rather than flinging little droplets of, of excrement away from their bodies like other hoppers do, these guys pass the, the liquid through their elementary system. They have specialized Malpighian tubules, that's parts of their excretory system, that add what are called mucopolysaccharides into the, the liquid that's passed through. That makes it very viscous. They're like, um, they're compounds that increase the viscosity of the of the liquid that's passing okay. through their bodies. And they kind of bubble it out of the hands, if you will. <laughs> and as they do that, air bubbles are trapped in this viscous uh, fluid. And that's what makes the spittle mass or the spit of a spittle bug. So they, they live in this, they cover themselves in, in this kind of frothy mass that looks just like saliva, it looks just like yeah. spit. And, but there's enough air trapped in that viscous fluid so that they can breathe just fine. There's no trouble with, with respiration. And that, that spit is you know, rather slimy and, and gross. And so it protects them, excuse me, it protects them from, first of all, drying out. So it protects them from desiccation. It provides a great um, kind, of, kind of sheath around them to uh, avoid predation. So if you're a, a hungry, predator, mm -hmm. vertebrate or invertebrate, the last thing that you'll do is look through a slimy mass of, you know, disgustingness <laughs> to find your next, your next uh, food, your next meal. Yeah, see, I was, was going to ask about that because to me, yeah. you know, not, not that it looks appetizing, I'll, let, me, let me just say that up front, <laughs> but when I look at that, I'm like, you know, that stands out like drastically. So yeah. know, if I'm a predator and I see that, I'm like, okay, well, clearly there's food here. So Right. It's a cue, right? So yeah. it's, it's not, it's not conspicuous. It's not meant to be camouflage. Um, 
and that's you know camouflage and mimicry are are strategies evolutionary strategies that other very closely related insects like the tree hoppers and, and leaf hoppers and things mm -hmm. plant hoppers that's a strategy that they've employed this this strategy is not that it's, it's as you just said it's you're absolutely right this makes them very conspicuous on their host plant um, you can see them but again it, it it's a it's an excellent strategy to uh, avoid desiccation uh, avoid predation avoid parasitism again it's it's um, you know not many predators and or parasites will kind of muck through this viscous gross slimy you know spit mass for the <laughs> hopes of a, a next lunch okay just in case that wasn't incredibly clear what we are saying here the spittle bug drinks tons of xylem fluid we're talking 150 to 280 times their own body weight every single day for the average human they'd be somewhere around 2,700 gallons a day. Meanwhile, I struggle to get eight cups. So big, 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 big amounts. Now, what they're doing is they have to pee all of this out. They create this bubbly home by leaking air from their abdomen. I guess you could call it a fart of sorts, and then mixing it with their pee to create this sticky, bubbly liquid. Now, if you are, you know, at all concerned for the young spittlebug here, thinking, if you're in a giant foam sticky pit, how do you breathe? You're not alone. And researchers have wondered this and questioned this. And guess what? They have found out. And they do so by sticking their, um, <clears throat> their hind end, or part of their abdomen, just outside of the bubbles, just enough to breathe in fresh air and to exhale their carbon dioxide. Basically, it's kind of like a snorkel. You could think of it like that. Now, here's the really interesting piece. Now, we, we mentioned um, how this is sort of a, a protection thing. Well, if you're sticking part of your body out, that doesn't sound very protected. Well, if, if they sense something or if there's some kind of danger, they'll just retreat down into the bubbles and stop breathing. It's kind of like submerging underwater and holding your breath until whatever moves on its way and you can kind of reemerge. But in this case, it's kind of like sticking your butt out to breathe. And I also have to say one thing that we kind of neglected to exactly mention is this transitional period between the uh, spittle bug and the adult frog hopper. Uh, it takes place within these bubble masses. Eventually, the spittle bug is going to retreat into a larger bubble or a larger mass, and it will start to undergo its transformation into an adult. And by the time that it's done, basically that, that spittle, I guess you could say, has dried up and become super powdery, like a like a dry coating over the developing uh, frog hopper. In North America, most spittlebug and frog hopper species live independently. But in other parts of the world, particularly the tropics and particularly the old world, so we're talking about Africa primarily, and some in Asia as well, mm -hmm. these guys will live uh, aggregatively. So, so you may have a particular tree or, or host plant with thousands of spittlebug nymphs on it, kind of living communally within a, a spittle mass that really envelops the whole plant. Um, they're really something to see. And in fact, if you've ever heard of the, uh, the phenomenon called an African rain tree. So many of them living aggregately on one tree, all drinking sap, passing it through and basically just peeing it out. 
uh, that it almost seems like it's raining just under one tree. Well, you know, so it's a, it's an interesting question. So um, these guys, as phytophagous insects sucking out the sap of their host plants, they do uh, and are capable of, of doing great damage to their host plants. Yeah. So when you only have, you know, as I mentioned here in the, in the temperate zones in, in North America, when you have one nymph here and there, you know, it doesn't really do much to the tree or to the host plant, whatever the host plant is. Sure. But when populations reach these kind of um, aggregative uh, numbers where you know you have thousands and thousands on a particular plant, they can do some serious kind of mechanical feeding damage. Um, but they can also, so even in the case where they're not kind of aggregatively living, they can reach population numbers that, that do an amazing amount of damage to their, their kind of regional mm -hmm. host plants. So by that I mean, you know, we have s several species of, of spittle bugs and frog hoppers um, around the world, but primarily in Central and South America that can do, and Asia as well, that can do enormous damage to agricultural crops. They, they, uh, these generally feed on grass crops. Mm -hmm. uh, and so you can have up to, you know, in, in infestations, you, you may have um, up to 70% yield reductions in, in crops like rice or sugarcane wow. or improved pasture grasses, causing literally millions and millions of dollars of, of economic damage uh, annually. So, so you said before that they largely live between those two uh, tropics. And um, from what it sounds like you're saying is you, you see more of these aggregate groups in, the, in kind of these tropic areas. Is there any kind of correlation that you know of between um, plant diversity or, or plant abundance um, mm. in relation to where the aggregates form? Because to me, when, when you talk about, you know, an insect here, there, there's like one per plant. And they're feeding specifically on one type of liquid out of the plant. It, it, you know, it's very niche, and yeah. you know, very safe and compartmentalized. But it's also very conservative. Um, and so I, I just kind of wonder if there's any connection there. You know, that's a, that's a pretty astute observation, and I I don't know the answer to that. I think I think there probably is something to do with uh, with that. You know, certainly when I think of the aggregate um, spittlebug species or the, the ones that live aggregately as nymphs. Uh, they are in places where there's a kind of a lesser diversity of, of um, plant choices around. Sure. So when you think of, as I said, you know, the acacia trees um, in, in Africa, they're the ones that I've encountered, the ones that I've, I've collected from, um, they're typically in, in kind of depauperate biota areas or you know, biodiverse areas. Mm -hmm. So um, I don't know that we can say that for certain in all cases, but I wouldn't be shocked to know that that has you know a role in that sure sure um so in when when they become an adult i know a lot of insects um in that adult stage when they're kind of just looking out for a mate and things i mean uh, they don't they don't really eat or really mind any other kind of business um is that the case with with uh, frog hoppers well so they they can feed and then they do feed as adults but but um, clearly, the, the the primary function of the adult stage uh, is to be little sex machines. They uh, <laughs> they they try to find their their mate and pass along their genes to the next the next uh, generation. So um, something I'm I'm kind of wondering. I, I've been in reading and stuff. I've been getting really into like the the battle between sexual selection and natural selection, and like you know how how different factors yeah. influence each other. And so with, I mean, this, this hopping ability that they have is, 
I mean, extraordinary, like the, the speed, the mechanics of it, the distance that they can cover. And so I wonder as an adult, do you, do you think it has more to do with like getting between, I mean, cause they're not, well, I don't know, like getting between plants or is it yeah. finding mates or avoiding predators? So yeah, that's, it's a great question. Not a whole lot is known. My suspicion is that they're using that jumping ability for um, predation avoidance, mm -hmm. uh, primarily. So, uh, you know, they, they can fly. They're not amazingly strong flyers, but they, they certainly can fly. Um, I think, you know, they um, the ability to jump at such amazing forces, you know, 550 G-forces yeah. in some species, you know that's astounding, and I think it's it doesn't really explain in my mind anyway. Um, just kind of getting from plant to plant to try to find a mate. I think it's really more um, when you need to to disappear mm -hmm. right now because your life is in danger. Um, so I think that in my mind, I think I suspect that it's it's more of a, a predation avoidance mechanism. Um, they generally find mates and they communicate with each other through. Uh, what's called substrate-mediated communications or, or substrate-mediated vibration. Oh. And so, um, you know, to our knowledge anyway, um, they don't release pheromones to, you know, attract mates or, or they, don't, um, they don't have audible singing calls like cicadas do. Um, but rather, spittlebugs and, and other hoppers like tree hoppers and plant hoppers, uh, they typically have very, very sensitive um, receptors on their legs and their feet and so they, they can pick up vibrations in the, in the plant that they're standing on uh, and that's how they generally or typically communicate with each other and find mates so um, so yeah I suspect that the jumping ability is, is really just how to how to go into hyperspeed you know, <laughs> really quick <laughs> what I want to know is um, you know knowing that now how come there's no superheroes based on Right? Yeah, I don't know. I feel like it'd be valuable for the X-Men, but you know, the big S on my chest is not for Superman, it's for Spittleman. And with that, we are going to have a quick word from our partner as well as a little a little extra trivia. Hi there from the High Coppers crew. High Copper's mission is to strengthen the body, feed the mind, and calm the soul by providing outdoor events and programming that connect people to each other, to themselves, and to nature. From women's hiking groups to kids' camps and community events for all, we invite you to visit our website at www.hikehoppers.org for details on the many ways we work to help create happier, healthier communities. See you on the trails! Well, it's that time where uh, we're going to play a game. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so clearly, I mean, we've been talking to you about um, spittlebugs and frog hoppers, and, and you know a lot about them, but how much do you know about Frogger? <laughs> so today, <laughs> you're going to be playing for one of our members, Andrea Lloyd, and we're going to ask you three questions, get two of them right, and we will send a prize out to Andrea. So, are you oh, ready? Okay. Well... Andrea, I hope we win. <laughs> <laughs> okay, the first question is, what year was Frogger initially released? 1985, 1982, or 1981? I would say, goodness, uh, I, let me go with 1981. I remember yep. playing Frogger on Atari. 
when I was a kid. Oh, well, you might you might get uh, you might get the second answer correct then. Okay, who who <laughs> who published the game? Is it Atari, Sega, or Nintendo? Oh, that's gonna be Atari. Yep, it's Atari. Well, you already got two out of three, but we can go ahead and try the last one. Um, Frogger, excellent. Yeah, it's, Frogger almost didn't happen. At the original pitch to Paramount, the company that actually owned uh, the video game companies, um, executive Jack Cameron Gordon originally rejected the game for what reason? A, it was too dark and its messages about habitat fragmentation and conservation were too liberal. B, it was a woman and kids game and wasn't going to sell. Or C, frogs were so 1971 and had seen their peak with that one three dog night song. <laughs> I'll have to go B here, that it was considered to be a, a woman and kids game. It was. It was actually a, a woman who was pitching the game, and the executive said, no, nah, this is a woman and kids game. Uh, we tried releasing a frog game before, and it failed. We're not going to do it. But other executives <laughs> convinced them, and it ended up being a huge hit. So, yeah. Fantastic. <laughs> and I have to say that the, the Frogger episode of Seinfeld is classic. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Congratulations, he has won the prize for you, and that prize is, drumroll please, $1 plus some stickers. Yay! That'll be on its way to you in the mail, and uh, yes, it is a real dollar bill. Congratulations. Like, why should people care about bugs? Why should they be interested, and why maybe explore a career in entomology? Sure. Well, so again, this is, these are these are great questions. So insect diversity is both fascinating and important. So, you know, fascinating from, a, from an evolutionary, biological, behavioral um, perspective. There are so many amazing things about the insect world, different strategies that we've been talking about to, you know, avoid predation, to you know, find mates, to eat things, to live. Just the astounding diversity of, of insects is just fascinating and exciting combined with the fact that there's still so much yet to be discovered, right? So we yeah. we hypothesize that there are, you know, many, many thousands of undescribed or unknown species to science that are awaiting discovery. And that's, that is um, thrilling when you, when you think about it. There's so much to know, uh, so much yet to, to discover. As I, as I mentioned, though, it's not only exciting from you know, that perspective, but it's important environmentally because insect diversity, you know, uh, um, strong and, and high levels of insect diversity are known to be indicators of, of environmental quality. Mm -hmm. So when we have healthy insect populations and healthy insect diversity within a particular environment or particular ecosystem, then we have pretty good evidence that that's a healthy ecosystem. And the, 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 what we were just talking about, the global insect uh, decline, both in terms of numbers and in diversity of species, is concerning because it's, you know, here we have indicators of, of environmental quality that are going away uh, or indicating that environmental quality is degrading. And so, so why would one be interested in becoming an entomologist? Well, because it's, number one, thrilling. It's exciting. Uh, there's so much out there to, to know about. But number two is... It's really important to us as humans. So, so you know, focusing on, on you know, insect or questions of insects, whether it's you know, global diversity or uh, pollinator health or you know, all of these other kinds of things, 
uh, medical veterinary uh, uh, concerns. So much of the insect world dovetails and affects the human world mm -hmm. that it's critical that we understand these things and it's critical that we we conserve what we have now. Well said. Well said. Thank you for listening. My name is Devin Boker. You are listening to The Wildlife. And um, this is our first larger episode back in, in quite some time. I'm really excited about it. Um, stay tuned because next week uh, we are back again with another episode. This one on quokkas, which I have to admit I for a very long time thought was quokka. And I was pretty much immediately, pretty much immediately corrected in this interview. And um, I felt so much shame. Anyway, uh, thanks for listening. You can support us at patreon.com slash the wildlife, paypal.me slash the wildlife. Any and all um, links to videos or pictures and things like that can be found in the episode notes. And please, again, uh, be sure to leave us a rating and review. And also check out those other shows that we drop links for in the episode notes. Um, promise you won't regret it. Take care. Peace out, Rainbow Trout.